The big questions are, how do business owners like us spending our own money, time, and effort, how do we grow our businesses and jump the line? That lets us accelerate the delivery of our products, services in our community while being smart about our growth, profits, culture, and still create lasting value in our business. Those are the questions, and this podcast will share some of those answers. Today's guest is Cameron Cole. He's the senior broker at Raincatcher. Cameron, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, Well, Cameron, thanks for taking time. It's a Friday afternoon. Tell us a little bit about your background and kind of bring us up today on where you are now. So I, I started a professional career at Northwestern Mutual doing financial planning. So you initially started with insurance and we started to work in the niche of business owners. We just felt like that was a really good need there. And you know, as we expanded the investments and more and more licenses that got, really started specializing in exit planning. So worked with a lot of physicians and business owners. Did that for about six years. And then the death in the family kind of just caused me to, to rethink things. And then ultimately decided that based on what I've experienced with all these business owners and how difficult the time they've had trying to sell their business, I thought there might be some opportunity to, to help essentially do business brokerage. So, you know, my path after that was basically that I you know, went out on my own, learned how to do business brokering, did it on my own for about five years, and then was asked to join Raincatcher back in uh, uh, May this year, which has just been great. You know, it's essentially it's gone from being a sole practitioner through practitioner to doing, you know, everything that there is to do. So now I get to really just focus on what I'm great at, uh, which is you know, bringing buyers and sellers to the table and getting deals done. You know, I, I think about, you know, the compare and contrast between the team approach to a business sale versus the sole practitioner approach to bring it to a sale. And what it reminds me is the difference between having a job and, and having a business, you know, mm-hmm. like for the sole practitioner, they might've been an expertise that you didn't have, might be franchising. It might be, you know, one type of specialist. Whereas at Raincatcher, you guys have depth of field. I don't know that there's this having covered. Yeah. You know, I thought I was smart and then I started working with some really smart people and I realized there's a lot that I didn't even know. I didn't know, <laughs> but you know, it's great able to be able to bring four or five minds together on a deal we're working in. It's just made a huge difference in the execution. You know, really, the, the progress that I've made, just as a business professional, you know, especially in my field, I've just learned a lot about what's a lot more value than I've previously been doing. There's definitely different ways to sell businesses as a business broker. And you know, I thought I'd been doing it the best way. And then sure enough, I learned that there's better ways to do it. It's humbling. That's interesting to maybe expand on that a little bit. You know, you think about, I thought I knew this way to sell a business. And then I've matured or adjusted. What was it that you used to think and what do you think now? So in my mind before, you know, joining Raincatcher, I, I kind of assumed that the deal was done in the conversations between the buyers and the sellers. So my goal was really to get people through the process, get them an NDA, get them qualified to the point where I felt comfortable sharing all the information. And I would keep the information relatively simple and high level with the idea of kind of an in or out and then get them on a conversation with the, the actual sellers. And that's where I felt like most value was, was created. So I, I just didn't spend as much time on that initial document presentation. And you know, ultimately, I think my goal was to find the best buyer at the moment. And what we've been able to do, or essentially what we, what's different now, is we spend a lot more time on the material itself. So the, the SIM, which is the Confidential Information Memorandum, uh, that is a lot higher quality than you know, the information I've been putting out there before. But also, one of the other key things is that we we focus on the buyer process and keeping as many buyers active and in the same stage of the process at the same time. 
So that way, when we're ready to call for offers, we've got a handful of buyers who are still interested. And by doing that, you're able to drive the price up to essentially what you know, the market will really allow, as opposed to what you know, maybe one or two you know, buyers might have been on during my using my previous method. You know, we still got deals done and the sellers were still happy with them, but there's there's potentially a little bit of money left on the table just by having a better process that we do now. On the sim, I think some folks may or may not know the folks that have sold a business before probably do. The ones that haven't may not. And that's what confidential information memorandum? Correct. Yep. So essentially what Rain Cash Road has been able to do is We've taken the approach that a lot of the investment banks at the high level, maybe boutique M&A firms do when selling a business, but we've brought it down to, I want to say it's more mainstream, main street, small business, but you know, really it's, it's the business that they're doing somewhere between like 1 million to 20 million of revenue. And we brought that really professional process down to that size business because it felt like there was this gap that was not being served by those industries, mainly because it makes perfect sense you know, as a business owner. If you can make a lot more money on a bigger deal, but put in a similar amount of work, you're usually going to take the bigger deals. I think having the servant heart that always wanted to help business owners and, you know, coming from the family of business owners myself, you know, just, I've got this passion and this like place in my heart for what I'd say is part of America. You know, it's those businesses that employ way more people than the bigger businesses. Now, there were some stats, I think, after the market events in 2008 and said 72% of all new jobs developed in this country after 2008 came from small business. A lot of people know that. And, you know, in smaller communities and even in the bigger communities, you look around at the business owners and you may not, you know, the employment is not the, the Lockheeds and Boeings in every town necessarily. And, yep. you know, for me, I didn't come from a business family back. You know, my father was in the military and of course I was military. And then you started getting involved in the business community. And my admiration for those folks that are self-starters and overcame many different challenges, you know, is, is like you, I'm a fan, you know, and, and I, I really like watching what they do. You know, you know, in, in circling back a bit to what you said in the beginning, you were working with physicians practices and so on, you know, in your previous life. What's your perspective on the physician professional trying to sell their practice? having been through small business and, and exit planning now, what are their challenges? The challenges for physicians? You know, a really unique landscape for physicians right now. It seems like all of the really big entities are essentially gobbling up all these smaller practices. And to sell a physician practice is actually really difficult because you have to find someone who's in that same specialty and is at the perfect place in their career where they can come in buy your practice, you know, they've got capital, they've got credit, they've got the financing they need, but also they've got the knowledge to run a practice, you know, with, within whatever specialty it is. So I think that's what's, what's led to a lot of those physicians having to sell to the bigger conglomerates and essentially becoming a part of you know, United Health. I mean, there's so many, but ultimately I think that's what's probably caused that. Whenever I have conversations with sellers, it's always try to just do a preliminary search of how many practices like theirs are out there being sold. And there's actually quite a few, which tells me that there's not a lot of movement, especially when you look at how long those businesses have been listed. So I think that's one of the big challenges is finding their their successor, if that's going to be something they do. And if not, you know, figuring out the exit plan that's going to work for their long-term goals. But it's it's I think a physician practice is probably one of the, the hardest to sell because so much is dependent on that one person, which is the physician or the group of physicians. You know, and when you look at the small non-physician business marketplace, 
do you see similar problems in determining the difference between a job and a business that these folks have? Yeah, I'd say it's it's definitely more prevalent in the physician practices, at least the, the private physician practices. When you look at the small businesses, there's kind of like this threshold where you, you go from self-employed to business owner. And it's a mentality switch where, you know, previously I was a self-employed person. I, I was aware of that when I was working by myself. You know, I knew I, I was a business owner in the sense that I filed all the business filings, but at the end of the day, my business was me. And, you know, I think I probably lack the drive to grow something and have that bigger business where I'm relying on a lot of people just you know, the way I'm built. And I think that that's probably what happens. Sometimes you've got some specialists, say you've got, you know, an engineer who's really good at engineering things, and then they realize that they need more capacity. So they hire some, you know, some other folks to help with all those other things, but they're still doing a lot of the engineering work. You know, more often than that, that's going to be more of like a self-employee, even though it's more of a business. I think the the true businesses out there are the ones where the seller has learned how to delegate correctly. And they've been able to take this wider range of tasks that they have to do when they start working. They've been able to just snip off little pieces of their, of their day-to-day to-do tasks and assign them to someone else. And I think when you can do that and focus on being a business owner instead of a widget maker, or an engineer, or a physician... Uh, I think that's the difference between something that's going to sell on the market you know, as a business or one that's going to be really difficult to sell. It's probably not going to sell for much if it does. You know, when you run across a business owner that's considering uh, transacting and selling their business, there's a level of awareness as to whether they actually are ready to sell or they've got a job instead of a business. Oh, goodness. It's a wider range. Like, it's everything, right? You get a little bit of everything in, in our fields. But you know, more often than not, a, a seller's timeline is kind of abstract. It's, you know, I'd like to sell my business someday. You know, and that someday is hopefully in the next like two or three years. You know, unless it's, it's more of like an urgent situation. But you know, those are that usually like those are tied to like health or, or something family or something like that. But more often than not, a business owner doesn't really know what the process is to sell a business. They're not really sure what the timeline is going to look like. You know, a lot of our job is just coaching and educating about what that process looks like. And in terms of, of kind of those self-employed folks, a lot of the time what we have to turn to is just sharing that they probably are in a place where they need to do a couple of things to make their business more sellable. So we'll incorporate some coaches. We have exit planning coaches that are specifically trained in getting a business from where it is to a place that it's sellable. We do that through a program called Value Builder. So it's John Warlow's program. Uh, he's out of Toronto and he wrote a couple books. I built a sell is one of them, probably the better known of them. But yeah, he's essentially created a program that you know helps coaches have a platform by which to then coach that seller through, I think, you know, 12 modules and 12 key areas to focus on. It's 12 modules, it's one a month, but there's eight key areas that I focused on. For you, you were mentioning process. So let's say I'm a, a business owner and I'm considering selling my business, you know, maybe now or maybe when, you know, with, upon advice, I'm thinking about it. Walk me through kind of the steps or process that you have when you have somebody that, that reaches out to you. Sure. I mean, from start to finish, you kind of... If I'm the potential a business owner getting ready to sell, and I'm going like, well, well what am I going to hear <laughs> their process, you know, and go, so kind of walk us through the steps. Sure. Um, so I guess first and foremost, high level, it, it takes usually 
six to nine months to sell a business that is ready to be sold. Mm -hmm. So by ready to be sold, I mean that they've got everything ready. They've got some key employees that they've figured out how to retain once the sale is done, if that's, if that's the case. They're not super critical to the business success. So they're more in a managing their business oversight function as opposed to being like in the day-to-day operations of a business. They've got clean financials. So meaning that's typically their profit and loss statement, their taxes tell the same story, which is less common than you'd think. <laughs> or, you know, if there's cash that's getting paid, sometimes that's not disclosed. So it's all sorts of different things like that. But, you know, let's say that you've got a business that is ready. Usually six to nine months from the time that they start working with us, we should look at having, you know, a deal done. And that deal typically is kind of broken into three stages. The first stage is getting the business ready to go to market and then going to market and then closing the deal. In that getting the business ready stage, typically we're going to do some sell-side due diligence. What we've learned is a lot of deals will look great on paper until you get into due diligence on them. And then all of a sudden, some random thing that wasn't known will kill the deal. So during that first get the business ready period, we want to find those issues now and figure out how to address them. If they can't be fixed, then we need to figure out how to disclose them. Yeah, someone once told me it's way better to disclose something upfront than for someone to find it out later, just because of the trust that gets lost along the way. So we do a lot of sell-side due diligence, really dig into the company's financials, taxes, operations, staffing, procedures, all of those key elements we're going to take a good look at, our entire team will. And then once we feel really good about that process, then we start creating a SIM, which is that it's a marketing booklet, for lack of, of uh, saying those really long words again. <laughs> so that typically is going to take us about two weeks to do. We've leveraged our whole team. And typically it's going to be a copywriter, it's going to be a graphic artist, and then broker, associate broker, and then broker support. We're all putting in our thoughts and everything to get that SIM ready. Seller reviews it, says, yep, that works. We get all the, the teaser, all the listing information that we're going to put out into the in, into the internet. We get that all drafted, approved by the seller, and then we go to market. So once we're in market, we typically reach out three main areas. The first area is going to be our internal buyer, buyer pool. So all of the people that we've met along the way from trying to sell a business that maybe didn't buy a business because it wasn't a good fit. Maybe the time wasn't right. Maybe it cost too much, whatever, but we've kept them you know, in our database. So we reach out to them because you know they're active buyers. Secondly, we're going to create a list of strategic buyers and financial buyers. So depending on the size of the business, sometimes financial buyers aren't relevant, but strategic is almost always relevant. So strategic would be, as an example, if if you've got a restaurant, a good buyer could be a catering company, or it could be another restaurant, it could be a bar. All of those those types of businesses that are kind of ancillary or fits somewhere along the, the supply chain. So if it's a service provider, they might look at getting sold to another service provider who does something similar, or it could be someone who is actually selling the supplies to them, right? They might want to buy service delivery elements and add to their business. So there's some strategic thought that's going to go into that. We're going to talk with the business owner themselves to figure out who needs to be on that list and who shouldn't be. Sometimes, sometimes who shouldn't be is more important. You know, there might be some folks that they've had some run-ins, competitors or suppliers or whatever. So I always want to get the no-go list as well. <laughs> but we'll reach out to them. So our team will actually reach out to them in a non-disclosed fashion. So it'll be very vague. You know, won't mention any details about the business name, you know, where it is. Because we're all we're very conscious of those things. And then lastly, we list on the main business listing sites. So the most well known would be BizBuySell. BizQuest is another really well known one. So we'll list on all those sites depending on what's going to be the best fit for the industry and the size. Some bigger businesses, we might list on a site called Axial. 
So from there, our goal is to generate as much interest from buyers as we can. And as those buyers come in, they sign NDAs, we qualify them to make sure that they're actually capable of buying a business and specifically this business. And you know, then we share some of that marketing material. So it's going to be the, the marketing book as well as some high-level financials. Redacted taxes is usually included in that. So we'll take the taxes and get rid of all of the, you know, the confidential, crucial information that we don't want getting shared. And then our job is just have conversations with those buyers until they feel like they're at a point where A, they're ready to make an offer or they're almost ready. Usually the almost ready, the last step is they want to actually have a conversation with the seller. So it kind of depends on, on the size of the business, whether we do that or Bigger businesses, we save that for later. Smaller businesses, we find that usually you have to have that conversation before an offer can be put in. But essentially, once we've got the buyer and they want to draft an offer, their attorney will help them draft an offer. They submit it. We negotiate it back and forth. And then kind of got the... It's kind of like the engagement ring you know, of, of a deal. You know, It doesn't mean that the deal's closed, but there's some commitment there. And usually there's a little bit of resources they put into it. And then you know, during that... Next period is the due diligence, kind of like the engagement period where you're engaged, but you're not married, but you're planning on getting married. So you try to find out everything about that business that you can as a buyer. And that's where a lot of our initial due diligence is hopefully going to counteract any issues that they might find. You know, say it takes 30 days for them to go through due diligence business. Usually documents get drafted after that. So you've got an official purchase agreement. You've got you know, settlement statements. You've got non-competes. You've got all sorts of documents that need to go into that. The attorneys draft that. Usually it goes back and forth. If we can get that done in two weeks, and that's a win. We've got some efficient attorneys. It's not as common as you think. <laughs> attorneys like to be inefficient sometimes. But once we've got those documents drafted, we set a close date, uh, everything gets signed. And then at closing, everything gets signed and transferred over. And then, you know, that's basically it. Usually there's a training period after the business is sold, and that's going to be negotiated during the process. So say it's a month, two months. I've seen up to two years where they're going to stick around and work for the company if they're just a key employee or they're very important to the operations. But you know that's all outlined in that initial terms, and then you know closing they're paid, and usually our fee comes out of the out of the end sales price. <laughs> it strikes me about that is you know when when you're thinking about working by yourself, the depth of field of potential buyers you know that you might have versus the depth of field with Raincatcher. Compare and contrast those two. So my buyer was about 1,200. That was what I've been able to collect on my own. Rain captures is about 8,500. So the funny thing is there's probably a lot of overlap too. You know, probably half of mine are people that actually have contacted rain as well. But, you know, having that extra 7,000 buyers makes a big difference for sure. It doesn't feel as bad when you re-email that list of people who didn't open the initial email you sent. And all of a sudden you get like, you know, 10 more people open it and all of a sudden you have a little bit more interest. It's just, it feels a lot better on our end as we send those emails where otherwise I'm going to the, you know, I get sent to people spam because it's just, you know, it's just not as powerful. <laughs> Some of the stuff I think for many of us, you know, once you've done it a bunch of times, you begin to go, well, doesn't everybody know this? And there is this no, because, you know, you've sold a lot of businesses for business owners. And for the business owner, it may be the first and only time that they sell their business. You know, and I, I saw a statistic not long ago that said 80% of the business owner's net worth is tied up in his business. And for you, when, when you're going through the process and the due diligence is going on, characterize some of the behaviors that you make. I, I chuckle because like imagine two really high strung people who have kind of set in their ways, right? You've got a business buyer and you've got a business seller. Both have some 
you know, grandiose vision of how things are going to go. And then there's the reality, which is usually, you know, nothing like either of them expected. So in every deal, I always say if, if something hasn't tried to kill the deal when it's in due diligence yet, then I'm concerned. You've missed something. Yes. And something's missing and something's going to come out of like the closet or out of some dark corner of this business and bite us hard. There's always some big issue or some big conflict that we have to get over or get through that somehow we just, we just missed. It was just something that the, the buyer thought and the seller thought and they just aren't aligned. We have to get over that to get the deal closed. Misperception could be. You know, people's feelings get hurt. The business is usually business owner's baby. You know, it really is. Uh, often a big chunk of their net worth is tied up in that business and it's been illiquid. They haven't been able to get that money out of it. And now there's this exit sign down, you know, down the road and they can see it. And all of a sudden things might start to change, you know, that the dollar amount might decrease because, you know, X, Y, Z and the financials didn't check out or, you know, this expense was required for the operations of the business and not discretionary as we call it. So, you know, part of my job and part of the reason why I like this job so much is I get to place, I get to play shrink a little bit. You know, I, you know, talk to somebody, listen to them, you know, let them take all their anger and frustrations out on me. And I take what they've said, repackage it into a nice little, you know, container, give it to the other party and say, here's really what matters. And I get all the emotion out of, you know, all of the emotion that came from that initial call come with some good logic, some good, here's what we got. Here's what we need to get over, you know, take their anger and frustration, try to boil down to a couple key points and then go back to the other part. It's, it's the wildest thing. I feel like a marriage counselor sometimes. <laughs> that business owner, right? And, you know, it would be atypical if this didn't happen in a business sale. Pre going to market, how do you frame that with the business seller? How do you frame uh, the an expectation that says, you know, this deal is going to die many times before it gets done, or you know, they're going to call your ba- your pretty baby ugly at some point. You know, <laughs> we 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 leave that until we've got an offer. I think I, otherwise, people would, they would never start the process with us. We we said this is going to be painful and it's going to be really hard. Um, we we don't tell them about that yet. Like, I think people kind of we hope that people come in knowing that selling a business is going to be a challenge. But once we get a letter of intent, you know, we've got some really formal you know, processes and some key messages we want to communicate to that seller to say, hey, here's what you should expect. Yeah. You know, There's this is what they offered. You know, you, you should be happy if you actually get this at the end of the day. You know, something might come in and it might drive that price down. Maybe if you get 90% of that initial letter of intent, you should be happy, right? Just kind of think that that's the number we're shooting for. If you have more than that, great. Um, you know, they're going to come in and they're going to, they're going to pick and pry this business apart and they're going to find all the reasons they shouldn't buy it. And they're going to try to convince you that, you know, they're not going to buy it because of X, Y, Z, but really they're just, they just want to feel more comfortable. They're putting a big chunk of, of their personal investment and, you know, their credit on the line to buy this business and they got to make sure that everything checks out. So really it's just about communicating upfront. I think letting them know what's coming. And then as it's coming, say, like, I see, I told you, I told you this would happen. So don't remember, don't be, this isn't a surprise. We knew this would happen. You know, here's how we're going to address it. Here's how we get over it. And then just taking it bit by bit. Right? It's, it's kind of that saying, it's like, how do you, how do you eat an elephant? Like one bite at a time. You know, how do you sell a business? <laughs> one small conversation at a time is how you do it. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, um, the um, John Warlow's, uh, diagnostic tools. How do you guys 
deploy that tool for the business owner that's thinking about selling? And then the second part of that question is once they complete that, how do you reflect that back to the business owner where they get data or, or get intel from that report? Yeah, so I'm going off the top of my head, so bear with me. But you know, essentially, there's eight key areas that that assessment focuses on. So we'll send the assessment out. And it takes about 10 to 15 minutes for a business owner to go through it. And they've got you know, a custom computation method behind it. So you put X answers in. It'll tell you how you score in each of those key areas. So the way I use it personally is I use it to identify some potential problems that I might not have known. Mm-hmm. Or so anything else. You know, if all of a sudden I, I think that they're one thing and their score comes back another, it just provides an opportunity for me to ask questions and learn more. I think you know, being surprised is something I don't like to, to happen in, in my line of work. And sometimes it happens, but I, I just don't like it. <laughs> it's like it's like never asking a question you don't know. The answer to is, you know, it's a good model for attorneys. It's a good model for me. But, you know, basically within that that eight pieces, we can say, here's what's going to make this business difficult to sell. Here's some areas that we could fix that are going to make this easier to sell. Here are the things we really want to focus on because they're such strengths. Mm-hmm. And those are that's really how we use that assessment. And, you know, I think it's really helpful because it, uh, Warlow's study was you know, his, his whole business is based off big data. So they've got something like 62,000 business owners who have completed this assessment, uh, which is a lot, right? I mean, that's, that's you know, business owners sitting out for 15 minutes and asking, answering pretty, you know, detailed and, you know, important questions. They're answering those that, you know, potentially they've never talked to anybody about some of these things that are in there. So they've got that data to then build their model that says, you know, do X, Y, and Z if you want to grow the value of your business. So because of that, I don't have to say this is Cameron's opinion or this is Raincatcher's opinion. I can say this is, this is data-driven based off of 62,000 business owners input who all were trying to sell their business. I actually had John Worlow on the show, on the podcast. Oh, that's cool. I, I met him in, uh, in Canada. I did the, the valuable certification. Right. You know, and, and I think about you know, the reason you ask the questions is because they're value drivers in the business, you know, and, and what are your thoughts on, you know, so let's say I'm the, a, a business owner and I complete the survey and, and I fall in the 40 or 50th percentile, right? And, and really, you know, you kind of go, well, I, I want to be in the middle of the pack. I want to be, you know, at the upper end of the pack. Yeah. What do you think happens to the business valuation if you move from 40 or 50% of the pack to the upper quadrant of the pack what happens to those guys yeah so being in the 50 percentile is not a bad thing it just means you have an average business that average business can be sold but it's not going to be selling at a premium so by doing all the things you need to do to make your business more sellable two things will happen one you'll enjoy running your business more and you might not want to sell it anymore that's the funny thing that happens sometimes Mm -hmm. if you can build a business that is highly sellable Usually it means that you're not involved day to day in the business. Uh, you've got lots of processes and systems in, in place. So you're probably, if you like golfing, you're probably golfing a lot if you have a business that's like that. But the other thing that's going to happen is you might actually get approached by buyers. They'll see your business and they'll actually come in and they'll likely put an offer in. Um, I think the businesses that score over 80 on that assessment, most of those uh, business owners say that they've actually been approached and given a written offer 
out of the blue, like, you know, an unsolicited offer. Now, the other thing that's usually this, again, this is the, the data, but usually what they'll say is that if you can score above 80, you will sell for 70% more than you would had you scored in the 50th percentile. I want to check that data because it's, it's been some time. Does that sound right? Yeah, but it's substantially more. Substantially more. I, yeah, the 70, it might be might be 50, it might be 70, but it's somewhere in that range where it's it's significant. You know, instead of a million, it's a million five or a million seven. You know, and, and so I'm 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 back to being me and I'm somewhere in the middle or below the middle. And I'm going like, you know, two, seven, and four are the areas that I'm really need to focus on to to move my score. And if I knew how to move my score, I'd have moved it. So, <laughs> you, you know, or if I was even aware that I needed to move that score, I would have. And so I need to move it. I'm willing to take and put in the effort. Is that where the training and folks, the Susan Cruz crowd at, at Raincatcher come in? Yeah, yeah. So uh, for those who don't know Susan Fru, um, she's a, a well-known speaker um, in the business sector. So she'll speak at a lot of conferences. You might have actually heard or seen her uh, at some point. But she leads our coaching program at Raincatcher. She's a business owner. She also is a business owner. She's got a, a HVAC, uh, plumbing plumbing and heating business here in Denver. Round trip in that thing. So she's been there, done that. Correct. Yeah. And um, she's actually my accountability partner so like every week we talk um so i, I know susan pretty well you know and like what her goals are and whether she's hitting them or not and you know it's it's, it's fun to know someone on that deep of a level but How's she doing on crossfit is she still getting after it on crossfit uh, we, don't, we don't talk about crossfit but she looks like it she does some crossfit so wouldn't want to arm wrestle i think she might beat me <laughs> but uh, yeah so that's essentially where the our coaches do come in and you know to take a business from where it is to make it sellable it's going to take time you know, maybe a year, two years. If you've got the mentality, that growth mentality, and you can realize that that what got you to where you are isn't going to be what's going to get you to that next level, and you recognize that you need help and you're willing to pay someone who's knowledgeable for that help, then it's definitely possible. It's definitely, you know, something that can be done. And as a broker, you know, I always used to tell people my, my second favorite answer is no. Right. My favorite answer is yes. Second favorite is no. So since I've started working with Rancatcher, no has become my third favorite. My second favorite is no, but I'm going to go coach and get my business better and come back to you. Because yeah. more often than not, if we can if we can help that business owner make their business more sellable, they're going to come back to us and everybody's going to win in the long run. You know, Us who are success-based you know, and paid on the, the total sales price of a business are going to succeed and be more successful. But also that seller is going to walk away with more money at the end of the day from the sale. You know, for me, it, it's kind of this virtual circle type thing. So I've got some gaps. All right, I can solve the gaps by taking training. So I've invested money in the training. And he goes, so let's say that the, the business, because I did the training and improved it, it's worth half again as much as it might have been or some larger number. And really, that number only has to exceed the cost of training. Yeah. Yeah, that's the funny part, right? You know, when you're talking about the value of a business, you know, let's say that you've got a business that's, I'm just going to throw some random numbers out here, but let's say you've got a business that's doing 5 million of revenue and you're doing 500,000 of, of profit, of adjusted profit. You know, it's, mm-hmm. you know, you, normally your business sales price is going to be based off of a multiple of your business profits. So if you can take training and let's say I meet you today and 
multiple on your business is a two. If you can implement a couple things and get your multiple up to a two and a half, right? That's half of one year's profit more that you're going to get in the sales price. So let's say that the coaching is a thousand dollars a month. Return on your investment's insane, right? It'd be putting in twelve thousand dollars a year and gaining, you know, two hundred fifty thousand in value in your business in just you know that short period of time. And that's assuming you only can get like half multiple higher. If you can get a full multiple, right, it's Again, using just round numbers, it'd be like $12,000 in, and then you get half a million dollars more when you sell your business. It's, it's a no-brainer, but you have to have someone who's willing to put in the work, and that's the key thing. You know, as I look at the leverage, and you know, you think as a business owner, what would I do to move my business a half multiple? What would I, I have to go buy another piece of equipment or buy another company or whatever it is you do? And you go, what if I just make this one more attractive and more efficient? Yes. And the crazy thing about my previous example is more often than not, that 500 is going to grow. Yes. So not only are you getting a larger multiple, you're getting a larger mul- larger multiple of a bigger number. Yeah. Right? And that's, that's how you can get a 70% bigger sales price through implementing the different things that some of the, you know, John Warlow and the people at Value Builder do preach. And I, I don't work for Value Builder at all. I just, I did some of their training and, you know, I, I, I believe in the program. So it sounds like it might be selling value. I'm not. <laughs> I think on your website for free. Yeah, yeah, we do. We'll do the value builder assessment and, and walk you through the results for free. And and before I forget, where do people find you on social media? How do they find you? So me personally, I'm on LinkedIn. And that's about it, to be honest. Spelled out called K-O-L-B. K-O-L-B. Yep. Yep. Uh, if you search Cameron Cole Braincatcher, you'll you'll find me. If you Cameron Raincatcher, you won't. There's two of us. You might get us confused. I've only met like three Camerons and I happen to work with one of them. <laughs> so. Part about you know, the, the leverage in the business, you know, and, and I was involved you know, in, in the exit planning space myself. And they talk about having an exit ready business is just good business. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you think about it and go, oh, basically people want to buy really good businesses. And if you have a really good business, then you get paid more for it. So, you know, it's kind of that virtual loop again, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in thinking about, I had a thought it'll come back. It will, but you know, for the business owner that's on the fence out there right now going, you know, I really don't know that if I want to sell it or not. And what if I reach out to Cameron, what should I expect by from at the end of the first conversation? I would say transparency. That's one thing I've been brutally honest with people, almost to a fault. I just believe that honesty is something that has gone missing in a lot of sales. So, so if you say, what's my business worth? I'm not going to blow smoke. I'm going to say, here's probably what it's worth, you know, and, and I'm probably going to be on the conservative side because I don't ever want to set expectations that are, that are incorrect because you know, expectations that are set incorrectly kill deals all the time. We see it. I see it almost every week where we've got some, you know, some seller who might not have gotten the correct expectations somewhere along the way. They want this. I mean, in reality, we should have told them that, you know, this was where things are, but we, you know, we might've told them this to get them to, to sign with us. And it came back to me in practical terms. I'm the business owner and you go, okay, I sell it for X, right? And I get some percentage less X after taxes. And I think I can live on that net proceeds after tax sale and maybe it turned out, maybe not. You know, and what I think from my perspective, a lot of business owners don't really spend a lot of time pre-sale thinking about what do I really need mm-hmm. and, you know, support my lifestyle and live like I want to. And you saw that in your earlier life and doing yeah yeah absolutely so 
you've mentioned having a business ready, sell ready, right? Exit, exit ready. You know, think with the or build a business with the end in mind. That's how I've heard it phrased as well. So I think one of the things that's really important as you're a business owner is to make sure that you've got all your, you know, all your what ifs taken care of. Because uh, exits, they can be what we're talking about, which is I sell to an outside party, they buy the business, I get a big check. But it could be it could be key employees leave. Leave, you know, you've got too much dependency on one employee and they decide, you know what, I don't, I don't do this on my own. All of a sudden, 80, 90% of your revenue walks out the door. So having correct compensation plans in place to keep those employees around, right? Those are like little things that you just don't quite think about because so many people are, are working in the business that they don't necessarily work on the business. You know, another, you know, kind of dark thing that you should always make sure is make sure you've got life insurance worth what you know, in the amount that you would hope that your business would be worth and have that evaluated. You know, life insurance is boring. Like it's one of the toughest things to sell. Like whenever I'm at a business site and let's say I'm dressed too nice and the, the seller's like, oh, what do I say if someone asks, you know, who you are? Just, I always say, just tell them a life insurance salesman. They'll stay away from me. <laughs> but having insurance in place is really important and making sure that having life insurance on some of those key employees, you know, God forbid something happens to somebody, you don't want that business value to just fall off a cliff because of that. You know, make sure you've got disability insurance. Uh, you can do a disability buyout. If you've got two partners on a business, you know, the likelihood goes up. So make sure that you've got insurance on each of those people. Because more often than not, if, if they don't have insurance, what happens is you know, business owner A passes away, business owner A's spouse comes in, you know, business owner B is like, I don't want to be business partners with you know the spouse. It's not They don't have the skill set that is needed to make this thing successful. So you just get insurance in the amount that you need. And then essentially the, the spouse is paid out, you know, the value of the business and then the whole business is the other partners. And you know, there's just weird little things that are important to do. And life insurance is so cheap. It seems like such a silly thing to do, but. And I think from the buyer's perspective, you know, they're going through and they go, Oh, that was smart. That's, you know, pretty soon you build this, this whole chain of that was smart. And pretty soon they kind of go, you know, my due diligence process and de-risking my potential purchase gets easier and easier as they look. Yep. Yeah. It's, you know, imagine that you're a buyer coming in and you're looking at a business and let's say there's a couple, let's say there's three key management people, or maybe it's a director of operations, a chief financial person, and, you know, some key manager who's just really hard to replace. You know, your initial thought is, man, this, this business is really dependent on those three people. What happens if I buy this business and one of them leaves? But then all of a sudden the seller says, well, I've got this deferred comp plan because it's day bonus built into their, their compensation. So, you know, if they stay three years, they get X. Mm-hmm. So if they leave, that goes that goes away. They don't get any of it. So we've got some things built in to help make sure that the value of this business stays what it is now or grows once you take it over. You know, and here's how we've done it. You know, that's just a whole different conversation than someone who's like, well, you know, I don't know, they could leave. You know, that's never really something I've been you know, really thought about that. It's just the weird things that you that I've come across in, in my career of like, huh, I never would have thought that mattered, but all of a sudden, once you know that it's an option, you're like, how, how can you ever not have that in place? <laughs> and for a somewhat sophisticated buyer, they can imagine all the good stuff. I mean, that's, the good's easy to handle. What could go wrong with this deal and what puts me at risk? And you start dissecting what you just talked about mm-hmm. and you go, oh, you know, if that one guy leaves, I'm done. Yep. I can't bolt this business on to mine, you mm-hmm. know, and I can see it. And, you know, I sold one business one time and it was the first time I did. And the person that bought it had done hundreds. And in retrospect, there's a lot of things that I did not provide for correctly because I did not know. Mm-hmm. You know, 
if it's not in writing, it isn't in writing. You know, it's it's funny, but that's where a lot of advisors should should be helping those business owners out. Right? They should have a really good accountant. They should have a really good attorney that they're meeting with regularly. You know, they should have a really good wealth planner, a good insurance person. So these are all things that I think every every business owner needs to be. You know, needs to have in their back pocket, but sometimes life just gets busy. And if you know you're working sixty hours on your business, you know how do you find five hours a year? <laughs> five hours a quarter. The past twenty years haven't exactly been smooth, and mm-hmm. so the business owners have been through the roller coaster, and and some of the life events that have happened, you know, goes through. And you know, I think for a lot of the business owners, they spent so much time keeping the money in their business, they really have not contemplated going from driving to riding. You know, I drove my business. I don't see this big risk. I've now sold my business and go like, how do I create the revenue stream and not scare myself to death? Yeah, and, and that's kind of the funny thing that that I always found. Like when we did financial planning, we would tell a business owner what their business needs to be worth in order to, you know, for them to be able to retire. And then the funny thing would be like the business wasn't worth that. So how do we how do we connect those dots? You know, it's and sometimes we'll work with a client who's selling a business. We make sure that they're talking to a wealth planner and all of a sudden the next time we talk to them, they're like, well, I actually need this amount from the business sale. And we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, we had talked and this is what the value was. What happened? What changed? And usually it's they talk to a wealth planner and you know the wealth planner told them what they you know, needed to get that X percent. And you know that's a super powerful and important job, but sometimes it's tough when you know those two conversations didn't happen between the, the M&A or the business broker and <laughs> the wealth planner. <laughs> and for a business owner, I think about it, there's always that discussion, 60, 44% is kind of what you can expect, that kind of gig. And you go, well, what if you have income producing you know, portions? What if you own the real estate and you sell the business and you lease back the deal? And so you, it ends up just being a math dance for these folks. It really does. You know, for so many of the folks out there that you know are getting ready to sell their business, you know, I always tell folks, is that when you enter something, you need to know when you're going to exit. And it's just, that's just how you enter, you know, indoor, outdoor. I mean, you got to have both. And thinking about the, you know, the value builder process that you guys have, where you're talking about, we got to have good financials. Well, what does that mean? What does a good financial look like? You know, it's like, I should be taller. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to describe good financials, but you know them when you see them, they're, they're they're clean. They make sense. It doesn't take any explanation for you to understand what's going on with them. You know, you're not like, what the heck is this expense here? And why is it so big? And you know, it's, that's how I describe good financials, right? They just, they're easy to understand and interpret and you don't have to do a lot of extra math to figure it out. You mean checking the balance of your checking account at the end of the month, not good financials? I mean, some people it is. If you want to sell your business, you'd probably take a couple extra steps. (laughs) Well, Cameron, I really appreciate that you're out there making a difference for the business owners. I mean, for the business owners, you know, maybe I'm not ready yet. You know, having a conversation is really important earlier Mm -hmm. and start making sure if somebody says you got to have good financials, just tell me what they look like. You know, I need to know the value drivers or value levers. Which ones am I pulling? Which ones am I missing? Mm -hmm. You know, make sure that you're, you're very direct about what you're doing. If you have, you know, an opportunity for a big contract with low margin versus, you know, broadly diversified margin, um, higher margin products, or, you know, you've got uh, supplier concentration, all those kinds of things you can address over the next couple of years. Having a conversation with Cameron, I think it'd be a good thing to do. And I mean, he's a normal guy. I mean, you can see the video. It looks to be deceiving. (laughs) The whole idea is to spend as much time thinking about exit because you're going to exit your business one way or another. You know, it's like when I have a client come in and says, if I die, and I said, well, if you don't, you'll be the first one. (laughs) 
So good luck with that. But yeah, you know, owner, you know, you know, and and I'm obviously a fan of business owners, so I wouldn't have the podcast and trying to record mm-hmm. what they do in their wisdom. So Cameron, in closing, anything you want to leave the listeners with? You know, I would just say you gave a list of all the things that you want to like address. And I'll tell you, every single one of those has gotten in the way of getting a deal done. You know, we've had to overcome it, you know, whether it be the supplier concentration, customer concentration, all those things. So sometimes the things you don't know are the things that are going to kill the deal. And you didn't even think it was an issue. So I would say myself, all, a lot of the other brokers at, at Raincatcher, you know, we love investing in a future relationship, you know, spending time to create that relationship and then following that relationship through to help you actually achieve what you want. So, you know, even if you're just kind of curious, what does that process look like? What, you know, what things might I be missing about my business that might be important to know? You know even if it's two, three years away from when I'm thinking about selling, just have a conversation. I would say we're always open to conversations and, you know, we're happy to help. That's why I got into this business is to help. For the listener out there, it's not like they're going to put you on the clock and bill you on an hourly basis. No, no. Okay. we're at a deal table. We're the only person who doesn't bill by the hour. It's just kind of funny. Yes, you're built by you built by success. We, yes, we we're paid when we get things done, not by how much time it takes for us to draft a document or you know have a conversation. So, well, Cameron, I really appreciate you taking time on a Friday afternoon, and yeah, happy to do it. Well, you take care, and we will talk soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Bob. Have a good weekend.